So one thing about um, speaking or preaching, uh, I get really nervous. So at one point, uh, just so you know, I, I led a church for many years, and so I had to preach almost every week. And it's definitely, it's a muscle that you flex, that you, you sort of work out. You go to the gym, your, your preaching muscle gets better, and, you know, the twitch is faster, and the recovery is easier. And then, now that I'm in a place where uh, I'm only preaching sometimes, um, I find that every time, that muscle just is like, needs work again. And it doesn't always kick into gear. Sometimes it says, I'm an old muscle, and I'm worn out, or I don't remember how to do that. So this week, um, I was blessed to have the opportunity to go to Taiwan. Um, that's where we were at for many years. And I went to our old church and heard the speaker talk about um, Paul um, not wanting to boast in himself, but let Jesus be the one that he boasts about. And um, <clears throat> I was reminded that <clears throat> the pressure that I put on myself to, to preach with a certain eloquence and humor and, you know, to blow your minds when I get up here, um, that sort of ends up being about me. And um, it brings attention to skill and giftedness. And, and actually what we want to do is bring attention to the text and allow God to speak. So this week I was blessed that I feel like a lot of what we're going to work on today, it just speaks for itself. It, it's instructions, and we just need to hear it, and we need to follow it. So today we're in 1 Timothy 5. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app or something, it would be good to follow along. Um, if you ever see me out there in the crowd, I'm always writing on my iPad. And just so you know, I'm not, like, playing Candy Crush or checking the scores. The scores come on my watch anyways. I don't need to. But... Um, I'm not playing around. I, I'm taking notes. And you might think, what does someone do when they're taking notes of a sermon? And let me tell you, it could be all sorts of things. I just want to encourage you. Like, if God puts an idea in your mind or a thought about something completely unrelated, just write it down. If, uh, if there's a point that really stands out, write that one down. If there's something you didn't understand, the point was made and you didn't get it, write that down. Just, it keeps your brain active. It keeps you engaged in what's going on, all right? You don't have to write down all the words I say, but you write down what God is sort of working through you in those words. But I just encourage that today because um, it always does my soul good when I have some notes and am engaged with the text. So First um, Timothy 5, I'm just going to read it. I like that we're in the habit of reading straight through just to get it into us. And then we'll sort of focus in on where we're going to be today. So it's titled, I'm using NIV as well this week. So we have NL, NIV, NLT. I think Mark preaches from ESV. So we're all over the place. But that gives you a chance to hear some different perspectives. Here we go. <clears throat> Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family 
and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Give the people these instructions, so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves, because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is uh, a believer, uh, excuse me, has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Okay, listen to this part. This this is where we're going today. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. For, for scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is reading, uh, treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove for before everyone, so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in, laying, in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. All right, that's a lot going on. Um, it's funny, as we've been going through this series, uh, we're doing one chapter a week. And um, the church I was, uh, we were at in Canada, I believe we went one verse a week, all right? So it took us, uh, it was something like five years to do Matthew, seriously. And so then, then we're trying to take off, uh, well, and we understand that we just have a format when we're working on it, but um, trying to do a whole chapter in one week. So we've got like some different segments in this text um, about how to treat people, uh, widows, elders, all these things. So um, 
I'm going to do a, just a quick note, just a, a little thought about uh, the first section, verse 1 and 2, about relationships with other people in the church. Um, and then the section on widows, I'll just make a comment and we'll move on. I don't believe we have any widows in our church at this point. So although this is important uh, to consider when the time arises, it may not be really applicable to uh, what we're doing right now, uh, what we're going through. So let me just address verses 1 and 2. So it says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Just a quick thought I had when I, when I saw this. It says, treat the people in your church, the older men, the older women, the younger men, the same age men, same age, whatever. Treat them as though they are your father, mother, brother, sister. And I just wanted to ask this question. Are we at New Heights developing these type of bonds that are similar to a family bond? Just a question. I would say, for the most part, no. Uh, maybe I'm reading into that. We haven't been here for a long time. Some of you may be real tight, and some of us are, are sort of strangers who meet up on Sundays. So I just wanted us to consider that he says, treat the people in your church like you would your family. So if we're going to move forward and if we're going to be a church together, we need to start developing this this trust, this love, this feeling of family. If we come here and we don't understand that we're a part of this spiritual family, then um, we're going to fail to live it out properly. That's all I wanted to say about that. There, there could be a whole sermon on that. And then there's a large section, verse 3 to 16, on um, how, to, how to treat widows. Um, a problem the early church was having at that time was they were having to take care of, or they chose to take care of the most vulnerable people in their communities. Um, and a, a large category of these people was widows. Uh, widows who, who, who essentially got everything from the man they were married to in that culture. That would have been their, their source of housing and food and clothes and whatever they needed. And so when widows, when people would die... If it wasn't a wealthy person, they wouldn't be left with a big inheritance and they'd be, you know, without a way to make a living, per se. So the church took on this task of caring for these ladies, and, uh, but it was starting to become a big drain on their, their bank accounts and their resources. Um, they didn't have a lot, and so um, Paul took the time here to say, who is it that we really need to care for? And he said, the, the older ones who can't, you know, get remarried, they're too old, uh, we need to take care of them. The younger ones, we should encourage them to get married and find another um, provider husband, I suppose. So yeah, this is what Paul was sort of talking about, was that um, the resources are, are being drained, and it's because some people are taking advantage of the system, and we need to, um, I need to instruct Timothy on on who it is that we need to care for and who we put priority on. Um, so it's important stuff, and it's especially important um, as we have more ability to give to 
those that are struggling in our community. Um, but for today, uh, I think the next section is where we need to focus our energy. So the next section, we, we deal with elders, uh, leaders, church leaders. And uh, I can safely, I think, say that those of us in this room right now are those that um, are concerned about this for our church. Um, with Brad stepping down and, and Carol stepping down a little bit, um, we are in need of a leadership shift. Um, that's why this series is called Pass the Baton. We're passing it on. Where the, Brad's saying it's time for a, a new leader or set of leaders to sort of move this thing forward. Um, so I think that that's where we're going to focus our energy today. So this letter, this letter from Paul, highlights a bunch of things that he believes are a concern for Timothy and this church in Ephesus. <clears throat> Concerns about false teachers, pro proper worship, qualified leadership. These are things we've seen in the chapters before today. And I just want to... Um, Go back to chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. Um, I think it's important, I think it's interesting to think of, what if Paul was writing this note, writing this letter to New Heights? Why is he writing it? So he says this, he says, Though I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will, <clears throat> excuse me, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. What is the church of the living, or which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth? Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And it is this, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. So Paul's saying, I want to come, I want to preach, I want to lead a little bit in your community. But if I don't make it, this letter is setting up what it is you guys need to think about. Right? He's saying, this is the stuff you need to value. This is how you ought to go about doing things um, to be a, a good church, to represent God's household well. And I think that that's where we're at. We're sort of left with some questions. We're having discovery today and we have some future decisions coming up. But what is it that we're meant to be about? What's our starting point? All right? Paul says, this letter tells you how to conduct yourselves, all right, and how to be a pillar and foundation of the truth. And the truth is this, that he, Jesus, appeared in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. This is the core of why we exist to preach Jesus, to, to learn about Jesus, to live like Jesus. And so this letter from Paul is saying, Timothy, here's how you need to put that thing together to be a best, the, the best representation of living out the truth in your community. And clearly, for whatever reason, for many reasons, leadership tends to be an issue that Paul's talking about. Paul says, I know you're setting up this community. You're going to need help, but you need the right kind of help. You need the right kind of people. You can see by all the teaching about 
uh, or sorry, all the instructions about false teachers. That there must have been some in the crowd in his church that were teaching the wrong things. So this list of the, the mystery of Jesus was being sort of altered, maybe played with a little bit. And Paul's like, man, you got you to get people in there. They're going to teach the right stuff. That's important, right? So there's this letter that says, here's how you got to do it. Here's how I see it as an apostle Paul, and here's how you guys are going to do it. And so I think that letter is really applicable to us now at New Heights. We want to be a church that preaches the mystery of Jesus. We want to be a church, a group of people that changes the world. But we need leadership. We need direction. We need some structure. We need some advice, if you will. And Paul's going to offer that to us. Now, has anyone been reading 1 Timothy on their own during this series? Anybody? <laughs> Brad, good job. <laughs> Maybe you should, everybody. But just to say, some of these letters are funny, right? Because he just sort of jumps topics, right? He'll be talking about something and he'll go, oh, and these guys. And you're like, but you were talking about those guys. Oh, and uh, what about uh, worship service? Yeah, you should do that. But you were just telling me about leadership or, or about women. And now you said, and you should play drums. And it's kind of like he's all over the place. So I find it sometimes funny. In this chapter 5, I feel like in some ways he bounces around a little bit. And that's why we have to sort of pick out this section on elders. So he's like, widow, widow, widow. Oh, by the way, your leadership team should look like this. What? Why, why does he do that? It's funny, but we're going to stick with the, the bit on elders today. Um, imagine, though, when you write a, an email, do you do the same thing? If you write a letter to friends and you're like, you know, this year for Christmas, we went on this vacation, blah, blah, blah. I had the greatest smoothie yesterday, the best smoothie. And you're like, why did you? But then you're like, oh, back to the email. And you can say stuff like, oh, back to it. Sorry, my bad or whatever. So it's kind of the same thing. He, he would write, and then he would go, oh, I just thought of something. Timothy, you also got to do this. So this bit on elders. We have this time coming up where we're going to have to choose our own elders, uh, our leaders, um, and, and maybe or maybe not a, a new pastor and different things. right? So I think this is really important. This is really good advice for us to listen to. And like I said, I, I do think it sort of speaks for itself. A lot of times as a preacher, you're looking for, like, what's the meaning behind the meaning? What's the, the nugget of truth I can find that no one else can find and then I can show off? But in this case, I think it's laid out pretty straightforward. He says you need some leaders. They need to be like this. This is how you're going to do it. So let's just work our way through this. And in the back of your mind as you hear it, just think, how does this fit into our story here at New Heights? How will we, you know, execute this or run this out in our own community? And in fact, for those of you that might move on from New Heights or whatever in the future, just listen to it and think, how are the, the leaders in the church I'm going to be a part of somewhere else? How do they fit into this? Or how do they select their leaders? This is not just applicable to New Heights. It will be valuable to you wherever you go. So... <clears throat> The letter of the day 
as Sesame Street might say, is P. So you just got to write down a bunch of P's because that's how I work. I feel like it's easier for me to remember a sermon if there's like, you know, a visual cue. So just think, oh, yeah, he talked about a lot of P's. And if you get half of them right, then you're half better than you were when you came in. So the first one, provision. All right? It says this, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. So for those leaders, by the way, I think this is backwards writing. I'm just going to throw this out there. He talks about selecting leaders last, but he talks about what we do for leaders first. Isn't that funny? If we don't have leaders, how can we talk about what we're doing for them? So if you feel it's out of order, so do I. But let's just go with it because that's how it's written. All right. So the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. So what's this double honor business? Um, two, two portions of something. All right. Do we, do we say thank you twice? Um, no. We've, we've got two different streams of honor happening here. Um, both come from precedent in the text in the Bible. And one, one honor that we want to have for our leaders is a respect and submission to our leaders. Okay? So we honor our leadership by respecting them and submitting to them. And the second of the double honor, of the two honors, is that we honor people by providing for them materially. In this case, uh, the word remuneration or um, financial uh, provision or a word that matches with honor, honorarium. So Paul's saying, hey, for those that are serving well in your community, Timothy, you need to honor these guys. All right? You need to give them respect. You need to make sure people are giving them respect. And you need to make sure that you're providing for them. What they do is important. It takes time. They work hard on it. You notice he says, for those who direct the affairs of the church well. And in this kind of well, it's, it's a bit of a value statement. Those who are doing a good job. And we know those who do a good job are those who invest the time, the effort, the energy. So if we're seeing that, if that's, if that's what our leaders are giving us, we are to give them double honors. Paul uses these two examples. Um, oh, let's say this. He said, we, those are, uh, sorry, worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. So why are preaching and teaching so important? Well, if you sort of go back in the rest of his letter, he was having issues with false teachers, all right? In all these young churches, it was key that we kept Jesus at the center, what he was about, the gospel message of good news of salvation. There were some key components to truth, to doctrine that needed to be kept. 
And those who were willing to put in the time to, to develop sermons, to study uh, their scriptures, these people were worthy of honor, preaching and teaching. So he uses these two um, metaphors or examples or, or he reaches back into Deuteronomy 25.4 for this comment about muzzling an ox. He says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And what this referred to is an ox, a cow, I don't know, you should all know what ox is, I guess, but they would use them to till the fields to do the farm work that, you know, tractors do now. And they're saying, let the ox eat a little bit. The ox is working for you. He's doing all the work. He's getting the crops ready to go and sell and eat or whatever you do with it. And if you muzzle, if you cover his mouth and don't let him enjoy the fruits of his labor, you know, then that's no good. It's not, sorry, it's not respectful of the work being done by the ox. Say, well, we don't need to respect the ox. Yeah, but you want the ox to work hard. You want the ox to keep walking and keep doing his job. So let him know, oh, yeah, if I do this, I get some, some crumbs along the way. So Paul's saying, these guys are working hard. Let them eat. They also need to eat. They got to pay their bills. They got to buy groceries. They got to have a, an apartment in Hong Kong, which is really expensive. So if they're working hard, let them eat. And then he refers to Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus said a worker deserves his wages. So what's the context of that statement? Well, he was telling the disciples, you got to go from town to town and preach and heal and do all these amazing things. And he said, but I, I want you to leave with me like today. Pack your stuff, pack a backpack, let's go. So you're not going to, you're going to quit your job and you're going to come on tour with me, right? But if I quit my job and I didn't bring anything with me, how am I going to survive? And so Jesus said, when you're, when you're out and you go to these villages, you go to these towns, he said, when you go there to preach and you teach and you love on people, you should get housing, you should get food provided for you. Right? He said, a worker is worth his wages, deserves his wages. So that just means if you're out there working on my behalf, if you're doing gospel work, you also still need all the stuff to do life. It's not like you're so holy that you don't have to eat. That body that's going to do the preaching needs to, like, be able to stand up and not pass out. Right? So Jesus was saying, make sure these local places provide for you. And actually, do you know, it's funny that he says, and if they don't, shake the dust off your shoes and move on. Which means if you go to a town and you want to serve and you're loving on people and they aren't helping you get by, then that's no town you need to be in. There's a town that needs you somewhere else. That's a pretty crazy statement. Just when you think about our own context or churches we might have been a part of. I did have the question that popped up in my mind. Have we failed Brad and Carol in this area? That's heavy. That brings it in the room. 
Now, Brad would say I chose not to take a salary and I had another job and blah, 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 blah. But that doesn't take away our duty as outlined by Scripture to pay into their life for serving us. And whoever the next person or the next situation will be, are we ready to give them double honors? And in this case, some material honors. It's something we've got to think about and we've got to fix moving forward. Now, the underlying thing there, too, is where does the money come from to pay the people that we're honoring? Well, now the call is coming out to give. And maybe you don't like going to church or maybe you hate when churches talk about money. And frankly, I don't like it either. But it's there and it's real. And like I said, people got to eat and people got to live somewhere. So as we think about what we're going to do for our future leaders, we're being commanded here to provide. It's not an option. It's not like, well, he got another job, so I guess we don't have to anymore or do anything for them. No, we honor them for their service by giving and helping them out as much as we can. You know, maybe it's not a lot. Maybe we can't fully provide a salary, but we can pay the groceries or who knows what. Just a thought. So provision, that's something we need to think about as a church, providing for our leaders. Next, moving to verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Here the P I want to talk about is protection. We have to be in the business of protecting our leaders. If our leaders are, are people who are give their lives to serve us, to serve the church, to uh, teach us proper doctrine, to keep us on track, to love us, to rally us together, then we need to protect them. We need to value them that much that we protect them. And in what context is he referring to here? All right? <clears throat> He's saying if, if accusations are made, if someone says, oh, you know that Brad? I saw him the other night super drunk in King's Wing. Super drunk. I think you guys should fire that guy. Well, first of all, we don't provide for him, so we don't have to fire him. No, that's a separate note. But how do I know if that's true? Someone just random, what if it's not even someone in our church just comes and goes, I saw Brad, he was, he was wasted. Well, I didn't see it. And I don't think it's a normal part of his character, so it's hard for me to believe it. But what if I took him at their word and said, oh, he was, he was super drunk the other day, and that's a problem. Okay, Brad, you're fired. Brad served this church seven years, six, seven years, whatever it was. And then one little report, and I go, oh, yeah, fire him. He failed. That's, that's what we're talking about here. We can't fall victim to maybe some petty person who's looking to target our leaders and bring them down. I've seen it happen a lot in the church for all sorts of reasons, whether it be competition, jealousy, or just sin that sort of rears its ugly head. So Paul's telling Timothy, 
hey, listen, if people have a, have a complaint, have a beef with your leadership, make sure you get some, some good proof. Make sure at least two or three people report the same problem. They back it up. They give evidence. Because it's not fair that a leader could be taken down by a rumor or a fabrication or something that was over-exaggerated. We need to protect our leaders. And on a slight side note, we need to make sure we don't join into that club of people that lobs petty accusations, right? I've been in churches, I've been guilty of it, or I've been the recipient of it, where you go to church on a Sunday, you, you see the, the whole thing, and then you leave and you say, oh, that guy, he did this. I bet he's like that. I bet he doesn't really believe that. He just wants the money or, you know, whatever. <clears throat> he just wants to sell his book. You know, that's when you might hear something like that, right? But we look for these little things, and, and it's easy. You get caught up in it, right? If you find two or three people who want to start a little something, you can get some rumors going. You can hurt somebody. And so Paul says you've got to provide for your leaders, and you've got to be ready to protect them. Don't just take on any little accusation and let them fall. They're too important for that. But, verse 20, but those elders who are, sin who are sinning, you are to reprove, or I prefer the word rebuke because I don't say reprove ever. Uh, rebuke before everyone so that the others may take warning. Ooh. So we protect them. All right? We, want, we keep them safe when the accusations are, you know, maybe untrue or unfounded. But if they're true, if you have a leader who's sinning and it's a problem, then there's another step. And the P here is public rebuke. See, another P. Provision, protection, public rebuke. So something here we have to notice is the word sinning. Not sinned. Because you might think, well, what does this mean? Like leaders can't ever sin or they don't ever sin? No, they do all the time, right? Just like everybody else. But the idea is that when we sin, we sort of confess and repent and desire change and, and deal with the consequences of that sin by forgiving and apologizing and changing. So it doesn't say... Uh, let's see here, what does it say? Uh, but those elders who have sinned, you are to rebuke. No, it says, those elders who are sinning. So this is sort of referring to uh, a, a habit of sin or a constant sin or a sin that's not being dealt with. They said, if you have a leader who just keeps doing this, you got to deal with this guy. And this is the scary thing. Don't just take them out for coffee and say, hey, this is unacceptable. Maybe that's step one somewhere. But really, Paul says, you need to get them up in front of the people. 
and let them know that it's not acceptable that he's doing it and it shouldn't be acceptable for us to do it. Whew, that's scary. But see, that's the, that's the, the leadership thing, right? As a leader, I get to stand up here and I get a public presence, right? I get to say these things and, and I get to bless you from the stage, all right? And maybe, as we saw earlier, I get provided for, I get protected. So I get all these public benefits. But for those who desire to be leaders, they take on the chance that they could have public rebuke and public punishment or public reckoning, if you will. Just as much as you get to be the star on the stage, you could be the donkey on the stage as well. So it's, it's something we all have to live with, those of us that go into leadership and, and those who in the future desire leadership. All right, let's move on. Where are we for time? Okay, good. All right, let's go to the next section. We go for verse 21 and 22 here. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. All right, this is a 3P section. Patience, process, and purity. So Paul starts by reinforcing the seriousness of leadership and of selecting leaders. All right? He said this is a big deal because you represent God of the universe in your community. The world is at stake, good versus evil. You are the representative. He says this, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So Paul says, I'm not just telling you to do these things and you're, you're accountable to me. He said, I'm telling you this in front of God the Father Jesus the Son, and all the angels who have gone before you, all those who have gone before you in this thing called gospel ministry. So he goes, don't take this decision lightly in selecting elders. It's a big deal. And he goes on to say, don't do anything with partiality and avoid favoritism. So he said, don't just pick your buddies. Right? Don't just pick your best friend. You're like, oh, I need a leader and you're here. And I like you. We, we eat burgers together. So let, do you want to come join my team? No, it's more serious than that. It's got bigger consequences than just pick your friends. Or don't pick those who maybe offer benefits. So don't pick people based on their wealth. If I pick that guy, if I, if I put him on the team, my provision will be better, right? We'll have less worries as a, as a church because he can pay the bills. That's a tendency we, we get into. Don't pick someone based on their, their, 
their power, their status. Don't just say, well, wouldn't it be cool if my church had the mayor on the board? Then people would say, that's a fancy church. The mayor goes there. Or celebrities. Maybe I'll pick Kanye West now. Maybe I'll put him on my board. And then people will be like, oh, you're the church that Kanye goes to? Sweet. But you get what I'm saying. We have a tendency to go, oh, who do we pick? Do we pick that sort of quiet guy in the fourth row who's always taking notes with his Bible? Or do I pick that really hot guy over there who makes a lot of money and drives a fancy car to church? Not that I find guys hot, but you know what I'm saying. Well put together. Just edit that out of the sermon tape. I got I got caught up because if, if we only select men as elders, and for me it would be appropriate to say hot woman, it didn't fit the, the story, so I had to stick with hot men. Edit. Blip. But you know what I'm saying. We tend to gravitate towards those that are... Um, you know, established, have money, have power, have something to offer, look good, present well. But that's not actually the qualifications. That, that has nothing to do with what makes a good church leader. And I'll refer you back to chapter 3 in our list of qualifications for elders. But nowhere in there did it say, um, you know, we choose elders who make the most money. We choose elders who can get us cheap rent somewhere. We choose, you know, that's not why we choose elders. So we can't pick favorites. We can't show partiality. So there's patience needed in this process. Because we got to find the right kind of people. Um, sorry. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Um, this, this phrase, laying on of hands, it might be um, strange to some of you, so I just wanted to pull it out. It's, it's, an, it's essentially a, a way of blessing and commissioning people. So it's, it's like offering our support. It's like, here's my vote. Whoever I touch is going to be the person I vote for. Right? We vote for this guy. We support that guy. It goes back to... Um, other examples, in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18, Moses is passing his leadership on to Joshua. And they do this by laying a hand on Joshua. God says, lay your hand on Joshua and, and he'll be the next guy. So it's this blessing, this commissioning, this, you know, sending from one to the next. It also happens in Acts 6, 6, Acts 13, 3. They send out groups of people to join in gospel ministry. And before they do so, they lay hands. They support them. There's some commentaries I read that I thought was interesting. They talked about um, Jesus was often laying hands on people to heal, to bless. And so Paul took this metaphor and said it's, it's sort of the continuation of the blessing from Jesus. Now that's, you know, some commentaries, but worth thinking about. So, we are to not be hasty. We are, to not, we are not uh, to pick favorites, to show partiality. 
And then read this. And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So what does this mean, sharing in the sins of others? It means if you are too hasty in choosing your leaders, or if you choose your best buddy, but he's got a lot of sort of garbage going on in his life, you are equally, maybe not equally, but you are included in the accountability for those sins. So if I know that my friend um, is cheating on his taxes, he's robbing the government because he thinks he has a loophole or they'll never catch him, but he's a really good worship guitarist. And I say, well, I need that guitar, and him and I get along well. And I put him in a place of authority, or I vote, or I select. And then he goes on to pull some shenanigans with the church taxes. And he says, well, there's a loophole that I can, like, hide a bunch of money, and we don't have to pay taxes on it. I become responsible for that sin and that decision that he's making. Because I knew that that was his character And yet I put him in there because I needed the guitar player. Right? So for us, in this upcoming phase when we're deciding who who leads and what kind of pastor or or who's available, we need to make sure we, we know about their character. Because what they bring and we sort of gloss over, we're sharing in that responsibility before God. When we lay hands, when we approve their leadership, we need to do it in good conscience. And that's what keeps us pure, as the text says. Keep yourself pure. And then Paul has what I like to call a brain fart. Does anyone know this expression? It's like when your brain like goes bloop and has like a thought that maybe doesn't fit. But I had to get it out. All right, so Paul goes, uh, selecting leaders, here's what you should do, here's what you should look like, it's heavy, heavy, heavy. By the way, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And it's funny because in some texts, I mean, translations are different, some texts have that in brackets. Like they're already acknowledging, this doesn't really fit in, but it's there, all right? Now, you could say, okay, why is it there and and is it important? Maybe it's not important. Maybe it's just a a thing for Timothy. But there is something to be thought of here just just to give you some insight. Water was not clean then, right? Water was not good for you, like just to, well, maybe some of it was good. But you got water running through cities that don't have sewer systems and don't have, it's not good news. All the water is not good. It sits around in jars and bugs float in the top and all this kind of stuff, right? So the water wasn't good. So Paul maybe makes this leap. He goes, keep yourself pure. And he's talking about sin. He's talking about spiritually pure. Then he goes, oh, wait, and you're also sick all the time. Keep yourself pure in body. Let's fix your body a little bit. And he said, you know how you always drink water and you're staying away from wine? The water is actually making you sick because it's full of all this grossness. So sometimes take a little bit of wine because the fermentation and the bacteria in the wine will take care of some of the bad stuff. 
All right, so I think it's like a little bit of a leap. He's like, oh, yeah, spiritually pure, physically pure, do this. Now back to the story, all right. So it's a little bit out there, but just um, wanted to address it because it is there, but it seems out of place. So he says, lay hands, do not be hasty, keep yourself pure. And then this is the last one. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. So as you're, I think he's talking about here, as you're evaluating leadership potential, potential leaders, give it a little bit of time, and those who have sin, you know, obvious, sin will become obvious, all right? He said, that's why you got to be a little patient. Don't be hasty. You got to watch these guys, and then you'll see the sin bubble to the surface. And those that allow the sin to bubble to the surface too often or too regularly, they will be instantly disqualified as candidates for being a leader. So he said, just wait a bit, and some guys will eliminate themselves, right? But he does say, the sins of others trail behind them. So the the sum will, the sin will come later. The sin will show up eventually. But he said some will be really obvious, and you can just say you can't be a leader, all right. And he said, unfortunately, you can't see all of it though. Some of it might come behind. So he said it's we evaluate someone's sin or their character as they're coming into leadership. But he goes, we can't always tell sin because it's inside. So then he says. But good works, we can see their, their character, their leadership in their good works. Listen to this. In the same way, good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. So he said, sin's hard to observe sometimes. Sometimes hidden sin. But someone serving at the church, someone showing up regularly and putting away chairs or playing in the band or preaching or setting up the lunch. That's easy to see. You start to see the character of a person in how they behave, what they choose to do with themselves, how they serve the church. Don't worry about trying to discover their secret sin. You'll find out the good guys and the bad guys by what they put their hands to, by what they're in the business of doing. By the way, the P for that section is proof. We have this saying, the proof is in the pudding, but the proof is in the results of your actions. So if you desire leaders or if you're looking at people to be potential leaders, you'll see the proof in their actions and how they serve. So there you go. We come to the end of the section on elders and selecting church leaders. We're in a funny time. We talked about it two weeks ago when we met. We have our leaders stepping down. We have some people who may not be around very long. 
we've got some decisions to make. And it's great that we are in a text that is giving us guidelines on how to make those decisions. So as we look for the fu- look to the future and who we want to have lead us into the future, um, whether that be a, a team of elders or a pastor or whatever, we need to reflect on this. We need to be ready to do what it asks of us. And we need to evaluate people and make sure they are ready to be the leaders that it asks us to be. We need to be ready to provide, to protect, unfortunately also to publicly rebuke. But the process will take some patience, right? And we need to be concentrating on purity and proof of character. So there's your P's for the day. There's your word from Paul to Timothy and I think to us in this time. Let me pray. Father, not all of us are leaders. Um, But we are all participants in your church. And as you've desire to organize it, there will be leaders. We need leaders to guide us well, to keep us in good doctrine and avoid false teaching. We need leaders to direct the affairs. And we love that. We love having people that care so much they're willing to give their lives to the gospel and to your family. Father, I ask that you would guide us all in this process that the church is going through. That we would begin to sift leadership candidates through these texts. That we would be patient and look for proof of character and of service. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the leadership we've had for Brad and for Carol and, and all they've done in this church over the years. And we confess, or I will confess on behalf of members and those who are not here today, that maybe in some ways we failed them. We didn't um, do our duty according to Scripture. And for that, we are sorry, and we apologize to you, God, and to to them. But we're excited. We're excited about new leadership, new uh, energy, new ideas, new potential, new hope that will bring us to new heights. This isn't, none, none of this is a down text at all. This is a great text. It says, man, if you find the right people, they will lead well, they will serve well. And we ask you, God, to provide those people, to make it known who those people are and, and um, how much you value them so that we can value them. We thank you for church, God, for our family and for these fellow believers. And just ask that we would come together um, in this time. 
So help us to enjoy a, a good lunch and a good afternoon, those of us that are staying. And I ask that you would send those out who are leaving with, um, with eyes to see uh, what, they, what they want to see in their church in the future. And God, don't let this word stay in this room today. Imprint it somewhere, whether it's the letter P that keeps coming up or just whether we open up our Bibles and allow it to work on us in the week. But yeah, help us to leave here changed. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.